Hello and welcome. My name is Austin Moyers, and I like charcuterie boards, stuff about aliens, and the Wikipedia page for the oldest living trees. My name is Michael Pugh, and I like hopping trains, laser tag, and horror films. And this is Chronically Fixated. Chronically Fixated. Oh, I thought we were going to do it. Where all your dreams come true. (laughs) Yeah. It's the podcast where we talk about stuff that we like or have liked, or maybe that we think you should like. Um, I'm wondering, some of you may be listening to this on iTunes, and if that's the case, um, we should rejoice, because it has been a very long time, and currently, this podcast is still not on iTunes. I'm not sure what the deal is. Um, I I put it on my floppy disk, and I sent it down to California, and I guess maybe it just got stuck in the mail. Um, but hopefully eventually they'll get this podcast going over there. And if you are on iTunes, uh, and you can listen to us, go ahead and get, leave us a review, preferably yeah. five stars, but as many as like, you think we deserve. It's five. Okay. Yeah. Deserve- you know, I was going to be <laughs> humble about it, but yeah. <laughs> um, you may have noticed that we had a song and that's pretty exciting. We are the first podcast to ever have a theme song which is big news. That was a lie. Yeah, the the song is Island from Fellow American, which is a fantastic band who Austin and I have had the privilege of knowing several of the members for quite some time. So check yeah. them out as well. Yeah, big thanks to them. Big, big thank you. Yeah, Island off of the album, uh, Hold Your Breath. Yeah, thanks guys. Um, so here we are, Michael. Another another week another podcast i'm excited to be here with you i'm excited to talk to you and i am excited about my topic well why don't we go ahead and jump into whatever you've got for me i didn't look it up at all so this is also going to be completely so fresh for me, it is. So. okay so my topic is sir william topaz mcgonagall the grand knight of the holy order of the white elephant of burma that is his title um he, this man who I just introduced is widely regarded as the writer of some of the worst poetry in the English language. Um, <laughs> even though that's true, he's one of my favorite poets and he's also one of Scotland's most well-known poets. Um, and uh, his poetry collections still sell really well to get today. Uh, so are you going to tell opinion, me how a, how a Scotsman became associated with Burma? Cause I'm already curious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a funny story. Um, but yes, yeah, so he's he's a very bad poet, um, but in my opinion, it's a really interesting sort of case study into art and what makes good art and what makes bad art because he has had this measure of success, um, even if it's uh, after his life ended. Um, so I first heard about Mr. McGonagall on a Harry Potter theme tour of Edinburgh, funnily enough. Oh, wow. Um, apparently... Uh, J.K. Rowling got a lot of her names from graveyards around Edinburgh while she was living there, which is um, a little morbid. Um, and one of those graveyards with that was at this near this school where her kid went, and uh, Professor McGonagall is named after uh, Sir William McGonagall. Oh, okay. Um, and there's this uh, this plaque in the cemetery that I saw, which says, um, "Quote William McGonagall, poet and tragedian." Uh, with a bit of his poetry under it, where it says, I am your gracious majesty, ever faithful to thee, William McGonagall, the poor poet that lives in Dundee. <laughs> so there's your, there's your first taste of his art. Um, are you much of a poetry guy, Michael? Yeah, I, I used to write a decent amount of poetry 
uh, as a means of like self-reflection uh, and read a good amount of it. I was particularly fond of John Donne and mm-hmm. Emily Dickinson, which I guess probably for the poetry nerds out there, they're probably like, oh, it's so basic. Um, Entry level. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, they're good. And good in uh, middle school, I used to write poems to girls I thought were pretty and give them out as birthday presents. Which how was that uh, success rate? Uh, it was you... too successful. And I had to stop because the list of people who wanted the <laughs> poems became exorbitantly long and included some of these girls' mothers. And I felt weird. And so I stopped. <laughs> that's understandable and that's a true story they they really loved your poetry that's great you might have to dig some of that up for me sometime and i once Um, had an incident where i wrote a girl a sonnet that inspired her to get back together with her ex-boyfriend so um, was that good were you proud of that or it wasn't was the sonnet supposed to get it (laughs) (laughs) it wasn't good for me so maybe i I don't know maybe mcgonagall and i are, are kindred spirits um uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I I pretty much hung up my poetry hat uh, after that for quite a while. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that you have a history with it. That's probably more than me. I I'm just a reader. I've never really written poetry, but um, I've I've had to to read a good bit of it, mostly for like school and stuff like that. But occasionally I do read it for pleasure and. Uh, William McGonagall is one of those examples that I, I, I think about often and and go back and read some of. Um, he's got a really funny history, which I'm not going to go into too terribly much detail of because I want to focus on his poetry, which we're going to read later some of. But I'll, I'll give a little bit of history here. Um, so he started writing poems in 1877 and was pretty much immediately told by his peers that he should stop doing that promptly. Um <laughs> Uh, but he didn't. So he just kept writing, kept performing. And I guess eventually folks were like, okay, he's going to keep doing this. So we might as well hire him. Uh, and it seems from the accounts <laughs> I that wish, we have. I wish that was the attitude I got more often. Like, <laughs> it seems like for most people, the opposite is the result. <laughs> he's not going to stop. So we might as well just let him do it. Right. Uh, so they started hiring him. Uh, but it seems like from the accounts of those hirings and recitations that the audience was they they were treating him more like like a comic musical character or uh, mm. like a comedian essentially um so they were hiring him to laugh at how bad his poetry was uh but he didn't care and he you know he didn't take their criticism very heavily and he just kept writing um so a couple years do in do you think oh yeah can I, I'm just a question do you think this is a situation where McGonagall like knew he was bad but he just loved it anyway so he kept on doing it or did he really think he was like a genius that just nobody understood cuz i have respect for both <laughs> i i think that it is more of the latter um okay but i don't want to i don't want to say that he was completely unaware like cuz i he he got all of this criticism and i i don't think he could have thought that every single person was wrong you know, but he just, he just took it and ran with it. Um, but there, I, I'm thinking there are a couple poems that I'm thinking of that make me think more of the latter where he was like in the poem, it was kind of like a diss track and he called out these people that criticized him and he's like, they're too dim witted to understand my brilliance. Oh, that's great. That's um, great. All so, right. Sorry. Continue. Yeah, probably, probably a bit of both. 
No worries. A couple years in, um, he realized that in t- in order to live the cushy life of a of a famous poet, he needed a patron. Um, so he aimed high and he wrote a letter with a sample of poetry to none other than Queen Victoria. He didn't Ooh. go for some du- duke or something. He went for the shoot your shot for the queen herself. Shot, <laughs> um, he was rejected, but the rejection yeah, letter okay. said something like "Thank you for your interest." Um, and he took that as praise for his work. And so from that time <laughs> forward, he, he used that as a defense. So someone would be like, um, you know, Willie McGonagall, he keeps writing this poetry, you know, in a, in a newspaper column or whatever, and he really needs to stop. Um, and he would respond and say, yeah, well, Queen Victoria thanked me for my poetry. So whose side are you on now? <laughs> Take that. Um, and there's also this funny instance where after the rejection letter, um, he hiked like 60 miles over a mountain because he heard that the queen was in a nearby city. And so he, wow. he hikes over this mountain, gets to the venue, and introduces himself to the guards at the gate as the queen's poet with his letter of rejection oh, yeah. as proof. <laughs> He's oh. like, I'm the queen's poet, and here's my proof. And they read it. Get, and you, it a, says, get you a man no who thanks. looks at you the way that McGonagall <laughs> looks at his rejection letter from the queen. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, so obviously they sent him away and he never got his audience with the queen, which is unfortunate, I think. Um, so his patron didn't work out. He didn't, he didn't go for another patron. He just, he decided to live life without one, I guess. And to make money for a while, he got a gig at this local circus where he would, read his poems while the audience was um, allowed to throw eggs, flour, fish, potatoes, and stale bread at him. Oh, man. So he was one of the events at this circus where he would just stand in the middle and recite his poetry and just get pelted with all of this trash. Um, and he got that, 15 that shillings sucks. a night. That I know, sucks, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty sad. Um, but he was cool with it. So cool that... Um, uh, it became a really popular attraction, and he wasn't hurt at all by their jeers, but the city magistrates had to shut down those performances because they were getting too wild and were deemed like a danger to the city. Oh, no. All these fights were starting. <laughs> you ever so write something his... so bad you almost cause a riot? <laughs> I know. Um, in his outrage, he wrote a poem in response titled, Lines in Protest to the Dundee Magistrates. And I'm going to read a couple stanzas of that real quick. Okay, let me just uh, prepare yourself. Just take take some breaths and okay, go. You ready? Mm. Fellow citizens of Bonnie Dundee, are you aware of how the magistrates have treated me? Nay, do not stare or make a fuss when I tell ye they have boycotted me from appearing in the Royal Circus, which <laughs> in my opinion is a great shame. And a dishonor to the city's name. Fellow citizens, I consider such treatment to be very hard. Tis proof for me they have little regard. Or else in the circumstances they would have seen to my protection. Then that would have been proof of their affection. And how a genius ought to be rewarded. But instead, my genius has been disregarded. Hmm. Some begin to notice a problem. (laughs) what's that problem michael so i'm not going to claim to be like a poetry expert 
right. nor will I. Let's yeah, let's say that right now. But you need more than just your words <laughs> to rhyme on the end of each sentence for a yeah. poem to sound good to the ear. And right. so some of those rhymes don't don't sound very clean to me, but maybe with like a Scottish Dundee accent, they come out a little bit cleaner. But for sure, your poetry's like rhythm for each line cannot be da 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 that's exactly the problem. Yeah, it sounds like, it sounds like broken windshield wipers. <laughs> <laughs> um, the so it's not like he was sort of bending the genre and being really, um, you know, forward thinking. Like he was, he was trying to write within the, the Victorian constructs of poetry because you know he had these the the um, the stanzas always have a set number of lines in his poems. So it's like he's he's going for a form. Um, he's just mm-hmm. really bad at meeting that for him. So, but he's got those end rhymes. Uh, fuss and circus is pretty good. But again, maybe yeah, maybe with that circus. with that Dundonian lilt might have fixed it. Not sure. Yeah, but I'm I'd be willing to bet that it probably only helps so much. <laughs> yeah, considering you know his job was to get hit by trash when he said it, it probably didn't help too much. Um, I'm but not you saw sure it's there, worthy that but it is pretty poor (laughs) it is pretty poor um you saw at the end what we were kind of talking about where he talked about his his genius being disregarded Mm. um so he he thought he was hot stuff i happen to also think he's hot stuff let me say that now Um, all right but it's but it's not for you know the traditional sort of uh qualities of poetry that you might be looking for um, so one more funny bit of history that you requested, Michael, at the beginning to know about <laughs> is that he wasn't actually a knight. Um, the sir is is not true. Um, so he uh, he received the equivalent of like a Victorian prank call where he got this oh. obviously fake letter um, cu- uh, saying it was from, you know, the the royalty in Burma that offered him knighthood. Um, and it gave him that that whole title that I read. Let me read it again. The... Uh, Sir William Topaz, they offered him a middle name, which he accepted. Sir William Topaz McGonagall, Grand Knight of the Holy Order of the White Elephant of Burma. Um, so that was entirely fabricated. Um, but he was like, I mean, I'll use it. <laughs> and so he, he used that title for the rest of his life um, and referred to himself as a knight. See, I thought something sounded suspicious in that because of the the order of the white elephant in burma um this is my fun fact for your session are you aware of the, awesome. the origins of like the term white elephant for like white elephant gift exchange i am not it does come from like the burmese area and uh specifically like thailand where for a long time and it may still be i'm not sure like the national animal and like sacred animal was the white elephant and so the joke was that it would be a great honor and dis and like disservice to give someone a white elephant as a gift because although it's like the national animal of burma uh which means they have to accept it right because it would be so improper to turn it down 
the maintenance and and expenses required to take care of a creature that large would basically oh bankrupt the person. You're talking about so, an actual white elephant, like full size, yes. the animal. <laughs> okay. Yes. So a white elephant gift became like a colloquial phrase uh, among uh, English people who had affiliations with those areas of the world for a gift that you have to accept, but is really more of a, of a burden than it is a gift. It's kind of um, like winning the car on a game show and now you have higher taxes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so it sounds to me like that phrasing was probably intentional because that turn of phrase had been a part of English and British society by this time. Mm-hmm. So they were probably referencing the fact that they thought McGonagall and his poetry should belong to an order of the white elephant. It's this gift that keeps on giving that they wish they could return, but they can't. <laughs> right? That's what a good fun fact you had for me, Michael. I'm so yeah. glad you had that little bit of information. Yeah, I think that that's probably right. Yeah, that's my that's suspicion. Pretty, that makes their little prank call a little bit more um, interesting. Um, this makes me think of the fact that he took this title and ran with it um, reminds me of, um, I don't know if you're a Game of Thrones fan, but um, yeah, there's this moderately. Bit, yeah. There's this bit where um, Tyrion is talking to Jon Snow um, and he's he just recently got to Castle Black and up at the at the wall and everyone's calling him Lord Snow, which he hates because he has, you know, no actual standing because he's a because he's a bastard. Um but they're calling him Lord Snow and he hates it and he wants them to stop. And Tyrion happens to be there during that. And he says, yeah, accept the name. Like if they're going to call it, call you something, just, just take it. They can't hurt you if you, if you accept it. Um, and mm-hmm. he talks about how he, he took the name, the imp and, and ran with it and he doesn't allow it to hurt him anymore. So it's, I, th- I think it's really, it, it may just be, you know, like a sad coincidence that he re- didn't realize it was a joke, you know, mm-hmm. or it may be this, kind of wise move to 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 take what he's given make lemons out of limit make lemonade out of lemons rather um and just and yeah keep going yeah. with this with this cool title this free cool title that he had a, a letter to prove I, i'd probably do the same to be honest <laughs> yeah um so throughout his life mcgonagall seemed generally oblivious to the to the to the public's opinion of his poems um and this is why i love him this is why i think he's interesting because he felt passionate about his art and he pursued it faithfully until his death. Um, objectively, McGonagall's poetry is not good, which you'll see really clearly here in a second. But I think there is something sort of beautiful about the sincerity of his poetry and, and of all art sort of like this. Um, mm-hmm. Because when it's bad art, you know that they're not making it for anyone else if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, Yeah. He's making it because he loves it and because he believes in it. Um, And when everyone else makes it very clear that they don't want it, he still makes it and he still recites it. Um, And I think that the sincerity behind that makes this in some ways a more beautiful art than, than some of the much more um, objectively good poetry, if that makes sense. Um, Yeah, I get that. I've, been someone who has either interacted with or participated in various forms of art uh, where 
you encounter something that maybe it's technically good, but you know that it wasn't really made for any reason other than to be like technically good, right? Yeah. Um, like you might hear a song on the radio and it's like, this is a good song and it upholds like the principles of music and it's catchy and it sounds good, but it was written just to do those things and not really anything else. Yeah. Uh, and so there may be other music, music in particular is where I hear this a lot that may be musically inferior. Maybe mm-hmm. we would, we could be like generous and call it experimental or avant-garde, but maybe it's just yeah. bad, but there is a sincerity to it that for me escalates it above the things that are more products than, than projects of love or passion. So absolutely. Can, you know, I, can, I, I can see where the appeal comes from. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't plan this, but this is actually probably going to tie really well into your topic later. Um, mm-hmm. So yes. Yeah. Yeah. For let's, sure. let's remember to pick up on that note of how important sincerity is. You reminded me as well of, um, I watched this sort of little documentary video a few days ago about corporate art, um, which is like mm. the the weird phenomena where all corporations are kind of using the same style of art, which is like oversized, strange proportioned bodies with, with colors that can't be, you know, not normal, like purple or whatever um, and smiling faces. And you see it a lot on like Facebook, just like these, these strange people and they're hanging out and they're, you know, they've got headphones on or whatever. Um, and it, it, all of this art looks the same and like objectively it's not bad art. It looks good, you know, and the, and the artists mm-hmm. that are making it are certainly achieving their assignment, which is to, to make art. That's not offensive. That sort of draws you in. That looks inviting. That's colorful. Um, but like there isn't actually any reason or passion behind it. Like it is specifically made to appeal to a lot of people. Um, and that's the only reason that exists. Um, and yeah, stuff like this stuff, stuff like William McGonagall is not going to appeal to a lot of people um, because it again is not objectively good, but there is just this sincerity and, and beauty behind it. So I'm going to, I'm going to stop rambling on and I'm going to read in entirety one of the, one of his poems. This is uh, the poem, the famous Tay whale is the name it's written about an event uh, where there was Go this whale it. in, in the, in this, in the bay outside of Dundee. Um, and this is one of the poems that people refer to when they say that he wrote some of the worst poems in, in English literature. So here is the incredibly bad and unintentionally hilarious and strangely beautiful poem, um, The Famous Tay Whale by William McGonagall. T'was in the month of December and in the year 1883 that a monster whale came to Dundee Resolved for a few days to sport and play and devour the small fishes in the silvery tay. So the monster whale did sport and play among the innocent little fishes in the beautiful tay until he was seen by some men one day and they resolved to catch him without delay. When it became known a whale was seen in the tay, some men began to talk and to say, We must try and catch this monster of a whale. So come on, brave boys, and never say fail. Then the people together in crowds did run, resolved to capture the whale and to have some fun. 
So small boats were launched on the silvery tay, while the monster of the deep did sport and play. Oh, it was a most fearful and beautiful sight to see it lashing the water with its tail all its might, and making the water ascend like a shower of hail with one lash of its ugly and mighty tail. Then the water did descend on the men in the boats, which wet their trousers and also their coats. But it only made them more determined to catch the whale, but the whale shook at them its tail. Then the whale began to puff and to blow, while the men in the boats after him did go, armed well with harpoons for the fray, which they fired at him without dismay. And they laughed and grinned just like wild baboons, while they fired at him their sharp harpoons. But when, with, but when struck with the harpoons, he dived below, which filled his pursuers' hearts with woe. Because they guessed they had lost a prize, which caused the tears to well up in their eyes. And in that, their anticipations were only right, because he sped on to Stonehaven with all his might. And was first seen by the crew of a Gordon fishing boat, which they thought was a big kobold turned of float. But when they drew near, they saw it was a whale. So they resolved to tow it ashore without fail. So they got a rope from each boat, tied round his tail, and landed their burden at Stonehaven without fail. And when the people <laughs> saw it, their voices did raise, declaring the brave fishermen deserved great praise. And my opinion is that God sent the whale in time of need, no matter what other people may think or what is their creed. I know fishermen in general are often very poor, and God in his goodness sent it to drive poverty from their door. So Mr. John Wood bought it for 226 pound and has brought it to Dundee all safe and all sound, which measures 40 feet in length from the snout to the tail. So I advise the people far and near to see it without fail. Then hurrah for the mighty monster whale, which has got 17 four inches from tip to tip of a tail, which can be seen for sixpence or a shilling, that is to say, if the people are all willing. Hmm. So that's it. <laughs> so um, here's uh, my response to that. It's not what I expected. So I've read some other Scottish poets. And probably the most famous one is uh, Burns. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually surprised by how much this feels kind of like a Burns poem, right? Obviously, mm-hmm, yeah. it's not as like technically good, but in terms of like the subject matter, the focus on imagery, if I allowed myself to kind of move past how clunky it sounds, I could, yeah, I could place myself in the scene. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it reminds me like of a, I don't know, maybe if you had a, an uncle or something that rather than making bad jokes, uh, he makes up poems on the spot at like family gatherings. Yeah, I like that. I can hear that. I can hear that sincerity you're talking about. I, I can. Yeah, I mean, like, there's there's no reason why a kid wouldn't love this. You know, like it's a it's a funny story about yeah. a whale. It's easy to understand. Um, and yeah, I know what you're saying. Like, it, it really matches. There was a, a phenomenon back there that was really popular where you just kind of wrote poetries about events rather than, I don't know, whatever other like feelings or whatever. Um, sort of story story poems that just relay what had happened, and so he he does. It, it fits alongside some of those other Scottish poets for sure, but yeah, it's just I like it. 
um, for for the reasons that I've said. But like, it isn't good. I think he rhymes tail, like with with fail, ten times. Um, yeah, <laughs> and something like that. Without without fail is said over and over, and it's just whale fail tail. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> fa- fail tail whale like he it's just he doesn't really try to find anything else right um and without delay is one of my favorite things in here that he says just so many times they resolve to do this without delay and they resolve to do this without delay and they resolve to do this without really and it's like why why would you think that you should say that same phrase um six times in one poem mr mcgonagall yeah but but that's him that's that's one of his most famous poems if you want to see uh more of Mr. McGonagall's poems. There is a um, a society devoted to his to like the rest or the, the preservation of his poetry, um, and it is at McGonagall-Online.org.uk. They've got all of his poems. There are uh, 258 on there, and also an autobi- autobiography, which is actually really funny. He wrote it, and uh, he didn't. I don't think he intended it to be funny, but it is. It's a really funny autobiography. So. <laughs> Check out that website if you want to learn more about this guy. Um, and tell your friends. William McGonagall. I just Coolest might have ever. to read some more of his stuff. <laughs> He's very interesting. And here's the deal. is like if, if this guy was willing to endure people throwing things at him and mockery and... All, all this stuff that people thought he was just a joke. And yet here we are talking about him, you know, was it almost, you know, 90 years later? I, I'm, I'm not doing the math up off the top of my head right now, but a significant amount of time later, right? Yeah, it should, um, yeah it's yeah more than that. Um, yeah, it'd be like 130, something like that. Something like that. I'm not very uh, good at math. <laughs> but yeah, what, it's, it, it, it what, speaks to it, right? Yeah, what excuse could you, the listener, have for not giving it your best shot, right? You too, listener, could could die in a in a dirty apartment with no money because you didn't write very good poetry. Well, as we'll see in my next topic, that may be exactly <laughs> what some people want. So yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's interesting to to live for art, even in uh, even to the to the downsides. It's it's an interesting thing. Um, yeah. You want to take a break, Michael? Let's go ahead and take a break. All right. Da, 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 da. Here's the break. Here we are inside of the break. Woo! Welcome to the break. We've got some announcements that we want to go over with you all. Um, first of all, we'll just say it again real quick. We got that new theme song. Big thanks to fellow American. Um, and that was um, Island off of the album Hold Your Breath. We also have a Twitter account. It currently has Ooh, two followers. I, I, I didn't know we had me. a Twitter account. I didn't even yeah. know we had a Twitter account until just now. <laughs> yeah, it is brand new, a newborn Twitter account. It's at CFixatedPod. Uh, you can come follow that. We'll post whenever the new episodes are up. And, uh, and if you want to interact with us that's probably one of the easier places to do it at this point i think most of our listeners know us personally um so it's been easy to get feedback but if you don't have a way to contact us um at c fixated pod on twitter is one of those places um speaking of feedback 
we've gotten some. You want to say anything about that, Michael? A little bit of thanks or whatever? Yeah, just thank you to anyone who offered um, any constructive criticism or encouragement for the podcast. Uh, it was nice. We didn't exactly know how the first episode would go, but right. uh, so far, people who have listened to it have enjoyed it. So thank you for anyone who's tuned in. Appreciate it. Yeah, Thanks. Thanks for being here. Thanks for, for telling us that you like it. It is meaningful. We like you. Um, so there's that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's all the announcements I had. It's not too many. After this, you may hear an ad. You may not. I do not entirely understand how these things work, but um, after that, we're going to be back for Michael's subject. Hey guys, just a heads up before we get into my topic. We won't be getting into anything too graphic, but just in case there's anyone who may be sensitive to certain topics, I will be discussing today particular community and genre of music that deals with some very sensitive topics in some very intimate ways. So if you've had any experience with trauma, abuse, uh, substance abuse or addiction, either alcohol or drugs, or just general feelings of mental illness, depression, anxiety, things like that, and you're worried that something that covers those topics might be a little sensitive to you at this time, go ahead and dip out from, from here on out. Uh, you won't hurt our feelings. We just want you to be in a good headspace while you're listening to our podcast. So if that's something that may potentially trigger anything negative for you or bring you to a bad place, please go ahead and drop out as we talk about some very important topics on this podcast. All right, break's over. Hey, Michael, how was your break? It was nice. We, I mean, I just got to sit here for, for a little bit, so... It wasn't a very long break for us. Um, yeah, or probably for, for anyone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, what is your topic? What have you brought for us this week, sir? So I'm going to be talking about something that probably is one of the most formative things in my life for many years. Not Great. quite as much anymore but definitely defined a lot of the person that I was in the past and became now. That's and awesome. We get a, a window into Michael. Yeah, uh, a very intimate one where I'll probably share more than I intended to. But <laughs> uh, this will be kind of something I've discussed with Austin. I'll be talking a little bit more off the cuff about and won't be looking at notes as much. Uh, because I wanted this, I wanted the my my time talking about the subject to kind of reflect the nature of the subject itself. Mm-hmm. So, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to be talking about a particular subgenre of music that is commonly known as folk punk. Uh, sometimes given some other names like riot folk or thrash grass <laughs> and various other uh, fun titles. But it's a particular genre of music that entered my life probably exactly when I needed it to and helped me work through a lot of things. And I'd like to think genuinely become a better person. And the way I discovered it was through a time in my life, I think I was about 15 in high school, 
where I was feeling particularly isolated because of some of the things that had happened in my life. And I had recently made some new friends at school who were, for lack of a better term, probably the scary kids to a lot of other people at my school. They wore Oops. unusual clothes. Yeah, they, they talked in unusual ways. Um, and some of those people may, in fact, end up listening to this podcast. So if that's any of you. Hey, guys. You, hey, guys. You certainly know who you are. And I definitely appreciate your friendships. Um, mm. And they were wearing T-shirts with these bands that I had never heard of. Uh, and so one day I went home and just started Googling them. So let's talk about what folk punk is first and kind yes, of please. where it came from. Because those two terms may sound kind of strange together. Uh, of course, punk rock emerged in the UK in the early 70s as uh, sort of a countercultural movement that had a bit more teeth than the uh, hippie subculture that had emerged in North America and other parts of Europe in the decade before. And the motivation for punk rock originally was to provide a source of music and community that was raw, countercultural, anti-authority, and very, cool. very well, yeah, yeah, very <laughs> welcoming to people in general who may have been seen as outcasts by society. Um, this may this may have taken the form of uh, political organization or non-political organization, but it was mainly just a place for uh, punks, which was then a very derogatory term to just kind of hang about, go to shows and get to know each other and develop fashion and art and music and things like that. Uh, over the years, punk rock began to kind of decline in popularity, probably reaching its height in about the mid 80s when on the West Coast in America, the hardcore punk scene emerged in California. Um, but over time, record companies do did what record companies do and said, hey, I wonder if we can make tons of money off of this thing that's supposed to be not about that at all. And mm -hmm. uh, the subgenre of pop punk was invented. Now, high school me would have been extremely would it, yeah, would have been extremely hostile to any notions of pop punk. Dirty sellout. I'm not as much. Yeah, I'm not as much anymore, but I still think overall it was something that wasn't very good for the uh, genre. And so right. punk became very com commercialized. That's how you went from, you know, the the Sex Pistols having songs about anarchism and The Clash having songs about police brutality to the typical, um, I want to leave my hometown. I'll never be the cool kid, you know, type of music um, right. that... It was it was the sound of punk rock stripped from all of the themes and ideas that would be not not appealing to the average consumer um, filtered through uh, the kind of the major record company like machine uh, mm -hmm. through a process I like to call hot topicification. <laughs> it's a technical term. Um, You'll see that in uh, in Merriam-Webster's next year. Yes. Uh, something that was basically something that was initially supposed to be a source of counterculture and rebellion became, yeah, you can be a rebel for twelve ninety nine for the t-shirt, you know, and, uh, yeah. the matching like bracelets and stuff that goes with it. 
um, it became rather than a kind of an ideology and a subculture to, to exist in, it became like a product that could be sold. Uh, there were some benefits to that, but there were also some negatives. So probably starting in around the late nineties or so early two thousands, there were some uh, punk artists who wanted to get back to the roots of what they thought punk rock was really about. And mm -hmm. so you may think that that would lead to a revival of the sort of seventies punk rock, but they asked themselves kind of philosophically, well, who were some of the people that were talking about building authentic communities, being yourself, resisting unjust authorities, uh, moving against the culture they, they kind of thought to themselves, well, even before, you know, the Clash, the Sex Pistols, the Ramones, the Dead Milkmen, you know, before any of them were doing anything like that, really, it was people like Woody Guthrie, Bob Dylan, Pete mm. Seeger. It was these old folk singers in North America who were part of the labor movement, you yeah. know, train hopping, uh, writing songs about you know, uh, critical of the American government and the great depression and how wealthy people had left the poor out to dry in the 1920s and thirties. And so they were like, what if we take that sound and blend it with the ideology of punk rock? And so what you get is those kind of harsh grating punk vocals, although that's not always the case mixed with mm -hmm. the kind of bluegrassy folksy instrumentation of acoustic instruments, banjos, mandolins, horn instruments, violins and cellos being very common. And so that emerged as a whole kind of underground grassroots DIY movement where because of like the revolution of like digital uh, media, where just like we're able to just make a podcast with very little resources all of a sudden people were able to record music, put it on the internet. So you had these uh, angsty, you know, teens, 20 somethings, 30 somethings wailing away on banjos and acoustic guitars during the Bush administration, recording it on cassette players in their closets and mm -hmm. putting it online and distributing it that way and making t-shirts by buying their own lithographic printing uh, stations and um, putting things up on uh, websites like Bandcamp where anyone can upload music. And instead of doing concerts at clubs, they were doing them in basements and people's yeah. houses or on the or street. Like in, I've seen a lot of videos of people in like drainage ditches, like folk punk concerts. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why that's such a popular location for it, but Quarries, yeah. all kinds of things like that. Um, yeah. So there were kind of like three types of folk punk that kind of emerged. Can I ask you real quick a couple things? Yeah, go ahead. So I was I was talking with someone about I, I know a little bit about folk punk, but not a ton, not as much as you, um, obviously. Uh, and I was talking to a friend the other day about it, and he mentioned bands like. Um, dropkick murphys and flogging molly who are like they have sort of a folk influence and also a punk mm -hmm. influence and i i didn't think that they were folk punk because like the one the folk punk that i i think of is 
much less produced, I guess, is the, is the main difference. And also yeah. it has these things you're talking about. So would they be considered with, because like, again, they have this heavy folk influence in, in this case, like an Irish folk influence. I would what probably, the way I would label them is I would, for someone like Dropkick Murphys or Floggy Molly, I would probably not call them folk punk. I would call them something like Irish punk. I would identify yeah. the specific culture that they're reflecting because mm-hmm. that's the thing that's most important and not they're not adopting the same kind of ideological DIY mentality that I yeah, think exemplifies that's... the folk punk genre. Right. Great bands, though, but I don't think they're sure. the same thing that I'm talking about. Um, cool. I just wanted to so clarify that. I will probably talk about what I think are the three main threads of folk punk yeah do it by talking about one artist who i think went through all of them through the course (laughs) of his life uh and then i'll probably talk about some of my own personal experiences in the community as a listener and as a songwriter and performer in this Mm -hmm. uh, subculture so the first thing is we got to talk about patrick schneweiss Uh, i'm not even sure if that's how you say his last name commonly known as pat (laughs) the bunny who's probably there you go that's easier yeah, he's probably the most famous <laughs> figure in the folk punk community. And I still contest to this day, one of the greatest songwriters in American history that most people have never heard of. Wow. So he started out recording and writing music when he was a teenager. And he wrote in the kind of first main stream of folk punk that I would call nihilistic folk punk. Mm-hmm. So this is music that No Bones About It says... There is no point to life. Everything is bleak. Everything is meaningless. I'm going to do drugs and drink and hitchhike. And I don't care that those things are dangerous because I'm going to end up in a grave facing the oblivion no matter what. To dust we shall return. Yes. And some of that is also tinged with general anti-establishment um, themes that may not be aligned with a specific political ideology because why would you care about the state? Nothing matters, right? It's all mm-hmm. spooks. It's all illusions, right? Yeah, yeah. And this wasn't the music that I encountered first. Uh, so Pat was writing... That's probably um, good thinking about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, so Pat was writing this music in a group uh, called Johnny Hobo and the Freight Trains. Oh, I've and heard of them. Yes. And I mean, you have uh, these lyrics that are just exceptionally um, nihilistic, like uh, I've woken up on the wrong side of the bed every day since 1987, which, of course, is the year that Pat was born. I've woken up on the side, wrong side Mm -hmm. of the bed uh, every single day of my life. Um, Pat. Yeah, I'll... uh, I'll take the beauty of chaos over ugly perfection, right? Uh, these lyrics about the entire social order is an illusion and is pointless. And why are you chasing these things? And songs about, you know, drugs are great. They numb you from the pain of being confronted with a reality that has no purpose, mm-hmm. right? And I'd like to say again, I'm not necessarily endorsing these messages, but I am talking about they are present here. So why on earth would anyone want to listen to this kind of music? Well, maybe you are a nihilist. Maybe you do believe these things. 
I never was a nihilist anytime I was listening to folk punk. But there are certainly days where it feels like it. Mm-hmm. I think everybody has days, especially think about it. You're 16, 17, you're in high school, surrounded by social structures that don't make any sense. Why are these people liked? Why are these people not? Why are these numbers determining my entire future about what college I can go to, what jobs I can get? Why does money control the world? Some days it really feels like there is no point to any of this. Yeah. I think that's a typical teenage feeling, but I think that persists throughout our lives. Absolutely. I was going to say like that, that feeling when you think, I was thinking it's kind of surprising because a lot of the folk punk I'm familiar with is very, is very sort of uplifting. Um, I was thinking it's surprising that, that it is so dark in its origins, but like all art that is dark like that, um, don't you, because we all experience that you may say, you may say, why would you, why would you make art like that? But Mm -hmm. don't you, it's one of the most, most real and strong sort of emotional experiences you can have to, to be in this, in this pit of despair where, where you feel like everything is meaningless. Like, don't you think that we should have art that represents that? Like, don't you think that people should be expressing themselves on those days? Um, and don't you want someone to sort of express on your behalf? Absolutely. Um, yeah, I am, uh, an Eastern Orthodox Christian and there is a great emphasis put in that tradition on reflecting upon death. Uh, there is a phrase that we are encouraged to say to each other from time to time, which is, brother, remember, you will die. And that's meant mm-hmm. to reinforce uh, how dependent we are upon things outside of ourselves, because the world is a world of decay and death and sometimes injustice and unfairness. And while this music doesn't have that theistic twist to it where it ends with hope, meditations about how fragile our lives are are really important because we don't want to confront it. Mm -hmm. So that's what I was talking about why I gave a content warning because this music, uh, sincere is a good word for, I would say raw. This is raw music. This is music that often sounds, sounds like looking at someone's wound. Yeah. yeah, It's it's raw. It can be uncomfortable, but it can also be extremely it can be extremely cathartic to be in a crowd of people yelling these lyrics together though. Right. Like I'm going to read some lyrics that I think exemplify this from, um, from Johnny Hobo and the freight trains, New Mexico song from their album, love songs for the apocalypse. Right. Um, I say there's nothing like chain smoking GPC cigarettes because any smokes will kill you, but these will make you feel like it. (laughs) Right. Um, we aren't revolutionaries, but we are the revolution. And sometimes I think that the whole movement is just me and you, but maybe we'd all be better off if that were true. Um, class traitor, whatever. I'm just another middle-class kid too. But if I'm not good at changing, I'm good at self-loathing. So I'll class hate myself with you, right? May our only occupation be not having a job and may the only cocktails we, that we make be Molotovs. It's just this, that was so punk. Yeah, yeah, right. So Pat realized that he was basically dying mm-hmm. and that it wasn't good to be dying. And yeah. so he started to move out of that. Other bands have followed that trend of talking about uh, nihilistic themes. I think of bands like Blackbird Rom, who also incorporate sounds that's almost like gypsy music um, in some of their sounds and things like that. 
Um, so then we have this other trend that is way more explicitly political, right? Mm-hmm. So I would say that this first phase, this nihilistic folk punk is there is no answer to our problems. Just rebel. Rebel against right. everything because none of it's real. Mm-hmm. Rebel against life itself. So then the second phase where Pat was writing some solo stuff as Pat the Bunny, but also in a band called Wingnut Dishwashers Union, which he was doing during the times where he was struggling to get sober off of his addiction to heroin, um, has a far more political angle, usually anarchistic, um, but not just nihilistic anarchism, things like anarcho-communism, anarcho-socialism, anarchism that has a structure anarchism that has an ideology behind it it's anti-authoritarian anti-capitalist um anti-racist all these things and uh it's it's, yeah it's more optimistic about the future it's this belief that and even if you see this sometimes in pat's music with wingnut dishwashers union you get this feeling of even if the revolution never happens like We'll live that way now. Like in our community, they can do the whole capitalist thing, right? But we're going to do it our way. And one of the things I'd say is even if you're not on board with these politics, I think you you might find yourself respecting the kind of um, desires that they have. Because once again, as a Christian, I'm like, well, that's kind of what the church is. It's like even if everybody out there wants to live Another way, at least when we're in these doors and we're in this community, mm-hmm. we're going to live this way, right? Yeah. And so uh, Pat started writing that with Wingnut Dishwashers Union and um, music about just the, the struggle, the struggle against these systems. These systems are real. Life is worth living. So let's make it a kind of life that everybody can live. I also think of uh, the late, great Eric Peterson and his project Mischief Brew. Um, which is very folksy music indeed. It sounds a lot like something like Pete Seeger. And um, tragically, Eric Peterson took his own life a few years ago. Uh, he was somebody that I admired as a musician and songwriter quite, quite a bit. Is that, how common is that like in the in the scene? More than you'd hope, but yeah, less than you'd that's think. That's what I figured. Less than you'd think. Okay, that's good. Um, but, but more than you'd hope. Right. Uh, unfortunately. Um, because as you can see, somebody who's already struggling with mental illness may be drawn to this kind of music. And yeah. I certainly was, but for me, it was cathartic for other people. It may be encouraging. It can, certain it can be a spiral, right? Yeah. And, yeah. Like sometimes when you're, sometimes when you're sad, like watching a sad movie helps. Sometimes it doesn't. It depends on the person. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So this was the kind of music I got heavily involved in. Um, Anything that was against the system, I was for at this time in my life. Yeah, man. And there is still there's still some of those trends in me to this day, to be honest. Although they're not I as do, strong. Even if I don't agree, sometimes like when when I hear something like that, I feel like pride for whoever's saying it. I don't know. It's a yeah. weird thing where I'm like, yes, yes, do that. Yeah, this say is say that. This, this, this is where we get bands like against me with music. Like I was a uh, like. Um, baby i'm an anarchist right and you're a spineless liberal we marched together for the eight hour day and held hands in the streets of seattle but when it came time to throw bricks through that starbucks window you left me all alone baby you left me all alone right (laughs) Uh, 
you know, or uh, the the song "My Idea of Fun," which is Pat just talking about his his image of utopia, right? Which is, you know, we'll grow our own food, we'll live together. You don't need a boss, you don't need a job, you don't need to own stocks. And he just keeps on repeating because we're enough. We'll always be okay mm. because we're enough, and you're enough, beautiful, and I'm enough, right? That's all we need. We just need each other. We just need a community of people who care about each other and not about material things. And we'll be enough. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, Can I hit you with a question? Yeah, go ahead. This, this uh, utopia thing, I feel like that's fairly common. And it made me think about um, the song Big Rock Candy Mountain. Yes. Um, are you familiar with that? Absolutely. Is that like yeah. the, the oldest folk punk that there is? <laughs> or, I yes. mean, it's not you, punk, you, obviously. You, you get some bands that have direct references to that in some of their music. Is that like a, like a text, a holy text? Yes. Um, particular. And the thing is a lot of the areas where a lot of folk punk scenes really developed were the same kinds of areas where lots of folk music like that developed. So like the holy sites, like the meccas for folk punk, isn't like LA, like it is for like rock music. It's like Phoenix, Arizona, Albuquerque, Gainesville, Florida, Bloomington, Indiana, <laughs> like these places in the middle Love of nowhere is where there were like folk punk festivals and things like that. You take um, carpooling uh, pilgrimages or hitchhiking pil- pilgrimages to the, to these meccas. Yeah. I like the idea of that. You stealth van camp your way there, right? People who in <laughs> yeah. the folk punk community would absolutely be stealth van campers. Absolutely. I believe it. hundred um, percent. I remember when I was first getting into writing folk punk, with some of my friends, I was once told by somebody, don't worry about your guitar being low quality. Expensive guitars and instruments aren't folk punk unless they're stolen. (laughs) 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 Right. And if you know more, if you know more than like eight chords, you're a poser. So don't worry about it. The music is supposed to be, there was a, go ahead. Yeah. There, there, when I worked at guitar center, um, there was one folk punk musician that I knew of that would come in. And uh, I, one of my managers, he didn't know who it was, um, would would kind of say to me, keep an eye on that guy. He's been known to steal guitar strings. Um, and I, I don't know if I can get in trouble for this. I don't know. I don't work there anymore. But as a sort of an act of rebellion, when he came in, I would walk to the back. <laughs> um, just be like, yeah, I- do your thing, man. And I never actually saw him take anything, um, so there, I, there's no in, actual incriminating evidence here. But um, I if I remember, <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure I know that person. <laughs> yeah, I think you do. <laughs> um, yeah, but there, there's a sense in which this music um, always has a political tinge to it. But this is the second stream where I'd say it's like pretty explicit, right? Mm-hmm. Then you have the third stream which is more optimistic and is more just about simple introspection about what it's like to live in the modern world particularly as it's understood as a dystopia as a utopia that's gone wrong mm-hmm. um so i think of is this where the mountain goats would fall mountain goats i would almost call like proto folk punk they're definitely a big oh, inspiration okay. right mm-hmm. and they but they do talk about some of those themes too Right. But here you have bands like Days and Days who, you know, with their song Fallout really captures this idea. You know, their chorus is, God, I hope we haven't buried ourselves too deep in a mountain of abhorrent ideas and greed. 
I really wish I had some hope for the future. Kind of sorry, uh, but I got to say I don't, right? <laughs> this is... Um, oh, yeah. How much further do we plan to take it? Slash and burn till the planet lights vacant. And I've always heard that when it rains, it pours. If we let the cops pull us over next, they'll bust down our doors. Prisons are loaded on our surveys. We're starving and gutters. So that kind of music um, is still kind of pessimistic in a way, but the energy is more positive. It's this idea that before we fix the world, we got to fix ourselves. So that's the music that really talks about overcoming drug addiction, um, becoming a better person, building communities. So Pat started writing music like that solo in this as well, but also in a band called Ramshackle Glory. And he has a song that uh, this is where I'll talk personally for a while probably prevented me from ruining my life Mm. because I think the context under which a lot of people our age grew up, Austin is we've lived in an America that has been perpetually in crisis. And I'm not even going to sit here and start getting political and say who's to blame. But if we're just talking about things like nine 11, the recession, um, Uh the, the, the resurgence of focus on uh, racial issues and racism like these things have perpetually hit us i remember seeing 9-11 when i was a kid i remember seeing uh the recession just a few years later and and seeing the stress in my my poor single mom's heart as the economy was exploding and i remember i remember ferguson happening when i was like a sophomore in high school and uh the iraq war and yeah i had friends whose older siblings died in the middle east and you know, we just heard perpetually in crisis. So I was feeling um, not just anti-establishment, rebellious like some teenagers are. I was feeling hopeless. I was uh, abusing substances uh, as a coping mechanism. I had probably lots of undiagnosed mental health issues that I'm still working through now that are thankfully are diagnosed and I am getting help with. And uh, Pat wrote a song with ramshackle glory called from here to utopia parentheses song for the desperate. And if you don't mind, this podcast may go a little bit longer, but I think that's okay. Um, I want to just read a, a good chunk of the lyrics from this. Yeah. And uh, starts out. I'm afraid that the circles I've been drinking myself in aren't big enough for the vowels that I try to fit inside of them. <laughs> When I was young, I drank too much. I'd be lying if I said I didn't feel just so young tonight. Maybe too young to ask what's on my mind. Like if freedom means doing what I want, don't I gotta want something? And won't you tell me that we want something more than just more beer? And my friends, if that isn't true, won't you lie to me tonight? And I've been listening to Minor Threat Records all day. That's an old punk band. Mm -hmm. I sing along as I tie off. And Ian screams he's out of step as I throw the cotton into the spoon, drop into the syringe, and I'll know just what he means until I hit a vein. But after that, I won't have to bother with knowing who I am for a while at least. And in a moment, the whole world is going to melt around me, and I'll swear I don't miss it as I lie to you tonight. Because I'm afraid to look the world in the eye. If nothing's going to change, well, then I'd rather die. And I'm too unemployed to organize a union. 
I'm too intoxicated to tear down a building. I'm too hopeless to look for a solution. And I'm afraid that if I found one, I'd be out of excuses for the way I waste away in the gutters that I chose, like fashion accessories to go with my dirty clothes. I haven't bathed in months. And you know, it's not because I've been fighting bourgeois morals. I'm just lazy and I'm young. And I've seen the best minds of my generation dying drunk or high from the rooftops to the parking lots, stomped to death in West Philadelphian squats. They got me waiting on a day when we can say F the police with a little bit of integrity, when it will mean I've got your back if you've got mine. Give me a scene where I believe in more than bad haircuts, guilt, misery. I don't know where I fit between the vegans and the nihilists, and that might be the first thing that I've said that wasn't a lie tonight. But there's got to be something more than lying in the front yard naked, screaming at the constellations. I want something more than an apology to say when I look the world in the eye. My friend William came to me with a message of hope. It went F you and everything that you think you know. If you don't step outside the things that you believe, they're going to kill you. He said, no one's going to stop you from dying young and miserable and right. And if you want something better, you have to put it aside. And I thought about how for thousands of years, there have been people who told us that things can't go on like this. From Jesus Christ to the Dickers, from Malthus to Zerzan, from Karl Marx to Huey Newton. But it just goes on and on. I'm not saying that we can't change the world because everybody does at least a little bit of that. But the way I'm living is a temper tantrum and I need something else to stay alive. And on the night that I play my last show, I'll be singing so loud that my heart explodes and I'll be singing, we are free. But won't you promise me that we won't ever forget what that means? I know it's hard to care sometimes, but promise me we'll always try. Because I don't want to hate you and I don't want to hate me and I don't want to have to hate everything anymore. Wow. That song changed my life. Particularly the, I think it just changed mine. <laughs> particularly the line, no one, you know, to speak to myself, no one, Michael, is going to stop you from dying young and miserable and right. Mm -hmm. But if you want something better, you need to put it aside. That nihilistic trend in folk punk, you can live that way. But I know too many people who aren't here anymore because of it. No one's going to stop you from dying young and miserable and right, but you have to do something more. Your life is worth more. Even if the way you think society should be never works out, build that community yourself. Be with the people that you love now. If you're an anarchist, you don't need anarchism to live like one, right? You also don't need to be fighting cops all the time and breaking into stores, right? You know, put it, put it aside and live your life. That changed my life, dude. And Pat has another lyric where he says a punk rock song won't ever change the world, but I can tell you about a couple that changed me. Right. And this is one of yeah. those ones that changed me. Wow. And from there, me and my friends really bonded over this music. My good friend, Heath Gossett, who was one of the groomsmen at my wedding. Um, shout out to my friend uh, who goes by the name Meadow. You can look his music up. Um, who he recently got out of rehab again. Um, who's fighting that struggle too. Um, these people have, some people might say that this music only encouraged bad behavior. And for some, some cases that's true. But for a lot of us who found ourselves in this community, it really helped us work through some things during a time where we were in crisis and didn't know who we were. And I'm not as involved in the scene 
as I was, you know, when I was a teenager and in college. Uh, but I'm really thankful for a lot of the experiences I had being in those sweaty, gross crowds, screaming lyrics um, mm-hmm. with my friends that are uh, that truly were beautiful. Like, you know, um, there's a lyric that says, like, uh, maybe God isn't the right word, but I believe in you. Right. Even if I don't believe in something higher than me, I believe in you and I believe in me and this community and, and that people can love each other and treat each other decently. And that's why, I mean, Austin, you were there even when I played a played a folk punk show with my good friend Ryan Albritton, who we had written yeah. some music together. And we wrote in that third stream, not uh, not over the top political, not nihilistic, but just this hopeful feeling of let's let's build our communities, let's love our neighbors, and let's try to make the world a better place. Um, yeah. And uh, I truly think folk punk is something really special. And I want to talk about it because it's not as much of a thing anymore with the pandemic. A lot of these bands really, really rely on selling merchandise, playing shows to survive. They haven't been able to tour. Um, And people are generally slipping back into that nihilistic trend of feeling like everything is pointless. And um, that path doesn't end well. Easy to do that after last year. You know, I think that's, that's been a pretty common trend. Yeah. So if anyone in the audience feels inspired by this music, I encourage you, write some. Write some optimistic, some some cynically optimistic, joyously angry folk punk music <laughs> that exo- exemplifies the genre so well. And um, I think Pat has a great song he calls Anarchy of Dirt, where he talks about sooner or later we're going to get our way of living in a community where all get along, even if that's just the cemetery, <laughs> we're all sitting there dead <laughs> next to each other. At least there'll be no more war or crime or anyone hurting each other. Right. Um, yeah. I keep living like a cross wire, like sabotage, like a lock glued shut. The ones like us seek each other like a brick finds glass, like a fascist meets a grave. Like sharks of blood, we gather what we can of shattered selves and face each other. I'll let the darkness speak for me when my bones won't listen. Till I return to the communism of the worms without God or master there, six feet underneath the earth. The commune of the dirt. And so, yeah, the, that community was was great for me. Still, I mean, I saw John, uh, not John Lennon, Paul McCartney in concert. Great, right? And still, probably the best concert experience I had was listening to Days and Days in uh, Dallas down in Deep Ellum with a crowd of people that I didn't even know who were putting their arms around me like I'd been their best friend their whole life, you know, singing with the band during their song's self-destruction anthem uh, and getting a hug from Whitney, uh, who's like the folk punk queen, right? And she's a fantastic musician and songwriter. Um, the guy in the band who's kind of the percussionist playing what's called the, uh, I think it's called the scum bucket. And it's like a wash tub with a broom handle and a rubber band that he plays like a cello. Oh, yeah. Rubbing my head and saying, ooh, it's so smooth. Like while he's playing. <laughs> <laughs> 
playing playing in the show it, it was just an unbelievable experience you know or that you is the thing that is like most um characteristic of of punk music generally not pop punk but like people if you don't know you'd think that it's just angry or or just yeah. just dirty or just whatever but like it is probably the most accepting sort of mm-hmm. genre sub community that there is um it's it's built around acceptance and and community and love and you wouldn't expect that if you just came in and heard one of the songs had left you know but yeah there's a famous story about days and days once played a show where uh, a local band of punk musicians opened for them and then uh, after they opened they got kicked out because they were underage and the show had been advertised as all ages but really what the manager was doing was kicking them out without paying for them so days and days quit the show and everybody just went into the alley next to the club and just played a show out there (laughs) (laughs) with their trumpets going and the the violins and the banjos and the um so if anybody wants to check this music out some artists that i would recommend recommend band called defiance ohio mischief brew moon bandits pat the bunny and all his associated projects just nick my friend meadow of course the taxpayers and there's a ton more, but those would get you started for a good idea of what all the different sounds that come from this community look like. And then part of the fun of folk punk is go online, go to Bandcamp, search the tag, and find somebody who closed up in their closet is just recording music with a with a Casio tape deck. Yeah, yeah. and um, you get that like really iconic sort of compressed like a, the sound little bu- it's yeah. just like obviously recorded like high pitch that. buzz that's yeah. on a lot of folk punk records oh i'd oh. also recommend andrew jackson jihad now under the name ajj also has some really good music um and whether you're feeling nihilistic or political or hopeful for the future you'll find something that i think will resonate with you and as I told Austin, I'll probably do a part two about this topic later on because I didn't have a whole lot of time to talk about specific artists and particular trends and also the history of the festivals and the pay what you want model for music where people just paid whatever they wanted, including nothing for this music and the community still thrived for a long time mm-hmm. off of that. Um, or I, I would love at a future date, Austin, to be able to give people and the audience interested in this music advice about how they can start writing, playing it, performing it and getting in touch with other people because I've had experience doing that. And boy, was it a lot of fun. So that's all I have for today. That night that I got to see you live was really cool. I really enjoyed that. And so, and I, it seemed like it was, it's something that anybody could do. Yeah. That's part of the beauty of it. So, um, so, uh, that's well. I was going to say that's all I have. That's not all I have, but that's probably all I should say for now. So, um, yeah. <laughs> regardless of your political persuasions, uh, perhaps you might find some respect in this small community of individuals who decided that they were going to do things their own way when it came to recording, producing, and distributing music. Yeah, it's awesome. Thanks, Michael. I I did not interject much. Yeah, sorry <laughs> during that because I was just kind of enraptured, enraptured with yeah. what you were saying. Um, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a really, it's a really good genre. Um, good community. If you haven't ever explored it, I recommend that you do. And 
Michael has given you a great introduction to it. So thanks for listening. Uh, that's been us. Um, if once again, if you want to give us any fa- feedback or anything, you can catch us on Twitter. Um, or uh, whatever way is convenient to you. And uh, thank you for listening and hope you see, we'll see you again here next time. Thanks everybody. Bye. Take me from my island. Guide me through the seas. I'm not sure if we'll make it. But Clap! This is the clap part where you can play the second song.